0: I'm Sarah Resnick.
1: And I'm LaShawn Moore.
0: And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the Weaving Yarn Shop Just Yarn and Fiber.
1: Hello, hi everyone. On this week's episode, I'm speaking with Indigo Farmer, textile artist and dressmaker Lee Magger. Lee's textile design studio, Madame Magger, is inspired by art, nature, folkways, and history. Her studio embraces a seed to stitch design philosophy that explores the history and rich yet tangled past of place while living and working on a former indigo plantation in Charleston, South Carolina. Hello, Lee. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Hi, LaShawn. Thank you so much for having me and being interested in my indigo story.
1: Absolutely. Can you start out by introducing yourself to our listeners and talking about how you began your Indigo journey?
0: Sure. My name is Lee Magar, and I have a textile art design studio called Madam Magar on Johns Island, South Carolina. It's a sea island just outside of Charleston, South Carolina, where I make seasonal and limited one-of-a-kind dresses. And from the dress, scrap cloth, home goods and textile art um, that I dye with plants that I grow and, and gather from where I live on John's Island.
1: And what type of indigo do you grow?
0: I um, Where I live on John's Island, I moved there um, in 2015 and I started researching the history of where I live, and began reading about the historical indigo um, in Charleston and on Johns Island in the 1700s, and so um, that opened my eyes to uh, indigo, and I was awestruck, and I um, began to, uh, you know, to to read about all types of indigo all over the world and um, I felt like um, it was in my path because of where I lived. I I would have never um, started my indigo path um, if I didn't live where I live. It's it's all um, history inspired for me and So that's how I started, and um, I began my indigo path by um, wanting to plant the historical indigo. And one of those varieties is the Indigofera superdicosa. So I planted my first crop in 2015, and then um, after I planted that crop, I was walking in my woods and I discovered our native. Indigo Para Caroliniana in the woods. So um, mm. at that moment, I felt like it was definitely meant to be that it was it was sort of my calling to, um, to work with Indigo and uh, my next life, I call it, because uh, my previous life, uh, 20 years I spent as a hat maker, a milliner. And this was a turning point in my life. So um, at that moment, I really became inspired by nature and felt a calling to work with Indigo and specifically the historical Indigo of where I live. And that's the whole premise of, of what I do is um, utilizing what's available and um, sort of going back into the roots of of it all and doing everything by hand and everything um with all natural ingredients and everything very slow and um with passion
1: hmm. that's really beautiful and can you go a bit more into depth about john's island and that discovery in the woods i'm really interested in the history of the island and also what it was like when you encountered this wild indigo
0: yeah i um like i said when i moved to john's island in 2015 i had always i'd never lived in the countryside and so it's eye-opening for me and um it was so beautiful, and because where I live—not to brag, but um, just to give um, everyone a sense of the flora and fauna of where I live—it's 500 acres of wild, untouched woods, undeveloped woods, which is very rare. Um, where I live, you know, in Charleston, is pretty mostly developed. So I was so awestruck. By nature and um, just the, the amount of plants that I've never ever seen before and it just was captivating and so inspiring for me and um, so um, that's why I do what I do is, is just because of the beauty of nature and I wanted to um, sort of share that with others in a way, in a creative way and so then I began the exploration is what I call it, indigo and um, also, you know, gathering uh, abundance. I don't like to say the word weeds, but abundant plants of where I live, uh, respectively. Um, so, yeah, it's just about the sense of place for me and the history of place. And as I began to research that history, I started out reading about Eliza Lucas Pigney who as a 15 or 16 year old girl brought indigo to you know South Carolina and I really was inspired by her vision, that vision as a girl to you know bring indigo there but then um, time passed and as I you know worked with the plant and worked with in the field with indigo for many years, I began to see and I opened my eyes to the painful past of that history and the truth that it wasn't just Eliza, it was the enslaved who um, made indigo a huge cash crop in South Carolina. And I felt the desire to speak that truth And in order for me to work with indigo, I had to face that pain and speak that truth. And so that's another reason why I feel indigo is part of my path, a part of my calling, because of that reason that I'm supposed to talk about the painful past um, and then move forward. And only then... Could I move forward, or we can move forward um in South Carolina to a to a a beautiful future,
1: yeah, I mean that comes up in conversation a lot pertaining specifically to indigo Ferris of food There has been a an account of history that has praised Eliza a lot for her contributions and sort of glossed over the the realities of the slave trade and the contributions of the enslaved people, whether it be indigo or cotton or any of the goods that really sort of propelled the American economic system in that era of time. And, you know, you're talking about bringing truth in, and and finding ways to have the conversation. What would you say are some of the ways that you've been able to have that conversation or create dialogue around the history in your work?
0: Um, well, um, I hope, yeah, I hope that it's in my work because it is part of me and it's part of uh, South Carolina. Like I did a project at the South Carolina State Museum. This was um, in 20, I think 2016, 2017, and it was a year-long project where uh, I created the South Carolina state flag with um, indigo dyed scrap, um, which was inspired you know, by the indigo history and also inspired by quilt making which is part of our history too so i kind of intertwined both of those things together and i spent a year sewing it um in the museum and um i would go there you know a few days a month to columbia south carolina to sew it and it took a year and it was just an amazing um project because um When people would walk through the museum and see me actually making the piece, um, that created a dialogue and a conversation. So that was my favorite part of the piece to talk about the history and um, because I felt like it really hadn't been talked about at all then you know this was years ago and um, I just, felt and desire to, to talk about the history and the truth. And um, people, you know, are really open when you start talking about sensitive issues. They become really open. And um, I was really also amazed at the stories that they shared with me, their personal stories. Um, so it was really, really beautiful, really emotional and really beautiful. And and. Um, You know, I like to sort of intertwine those themes in my work, in my textile art work, because it's, it's the whole story, and it makes it, you know, true, and it makes it real.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that I did notice about your work that I think is really beautiful that I'm interested in talking about is your use of indigo scraps and swatches. One of the pieces in particular that I am interested in is the scrap silhouette installation that you did. Um, is that the same as the installation you're talking about with the South Carolina flag or those different art pieces?
0: That was a different project. That, that was a piece that I created for the um, Charleston Museum. And that was also another I call work in process pieces where I actually sewed the piece at the museum or at the um, gallery. And like I said, I just really enjoy that process because it's, I think it's also important for people to see the amount of work handwork that goes into these pieces. Um, so that was, um, the scrap silhouette was, again, scrap, you know, which I I like the idea of utilizing scrap or utilizing waste or utilizing what you have. And I get that from my grandma, who was really good at that. She was um, a farmer and, you know, she grew and a huge garden and cooked and canned from her garden. And she used every bit of scrap that she had. And um, Mm -hmm. so that really resonates with me. And the quilt making I've just always been inspired by. I started collecting quilts in high school for some reason. I just always loved, you know, the way they looked. And I think it was because most of the times I feel like they were made with cloth scrap. And so anyway, um, I would get them for, you know, like 3 or $5 a piece, you know, at the thrift stores. Um, those were the days, right? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no longer. But anyway, so that piece I created with um, indigo dyed scrap and it was about 5 by 7 and I think it took me three three to five full days of sewing on it, hand sewing. And um, that was a project through the Charleston Museum. Uh, and this was, I think it was 2016. Um, and it was a, a project where um, artists were invited to create their version of Eliza Lucas Picney because there's no known known portrait of her, which is mysterious because of a woman or a girl of that, you know, stature, they would always have multiple paintings of them, you know? So um so that was actually my um portrait of her in the beginning. It was a portrait of her, but uh I was kind of in a hurry to make the pattern and my husband, he's an architect and an artist and he makes my patterns for the big pieces. And I said, let's make it easy. Just put my face on it. (laughs) (laughs) It was my face. And at the time I had short hair. And and so I made this big hair. And so I said, that's it. That's it. I'm not going to, you know, overthink it. Um, So, it sort of, her portrait is so funny to think about, the evolution of her portrait and of how she was such an inspiration, how that portrait actually became me and my logo. You know what I mean? It kind of evolved into something historical and evolved into something new and true, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's been the whole... Um, I guess, half of uh, my work, of years of my work, um, you know, from the beginning.
1: And you mentioned earlier about growing and harvesting indigo. Can you talk about your process, starting from the land that you use and um, how you create your vat?
0: Yeah, I, um, you know, I never... (laughs) I never farmed ever, and I never, ever thought I would be a farmer, but I guess I am an indigo farmer, a small scale. And I guess I, I call my – I don't call it indigo farm. I call it my indigo field. So it's a pretty big indigo field. I have about 300 – or I had about 300 indigo super supernacosa plants, and mm. I just finished harvesting yesterday and um so after learning about eliza and learning about the history i decided to plant indigo and at the time in 2015 uh uh, indigo seeds were really the superdicosa seeds were really hard to find i had a very hard time finding them um you could find the japanese but not the superdicosa so finally i found them through a friend of a friend um, uh, indigo artisan and dyer who's a monk and a, and a hermit and he's been growing indigo supercosa for almost 20 years hmm. so yeah so lucky I got he said sure he gave me tons of seed and not only that he became a mentor um, for me to learn you know all things indigo And so that seed, I call it the holy seed, because it's from a monk and a hermit. And um, so that started my um, growing of indigo. And I feel like, um, I don't want to say, I I want to talk a little bit, I don't want to be negative, but I want to talk a little bit about how it's not easy just so people know the whole truth of what I do. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. I struggle. Yeah. I struggle with it because it takes me from my work, from my studio, from my creativity it takes me really from everything in the summer months. I'm just out in that indigo field sweating, you know, and um, with the mosquitoes and, you know, it's. I don't mean to cook complain but it's it's not easy but I don't regret doing it I feel for me it's worth it because um because I have the land to do it and because I learned so much out there you know what I mean I learned not just from the indigo plants I learned from the Dragonflies. I learned from the birds, you know, I learned from the snakes, you know, it's just, just you can't, you can't learn anything like that unless you experience being out in the field for a summer, you know, it's just a learning process that you have to experience and I can't explain it. It's just, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. So
1: did you notice a difference in the behavior of snakes around your land? with the indigo, because I grow I grow indigo as well. And my neighbors were all telling me like, oh, it's snake season, like be careful, be careful. And I didn't see a single snake all season. And I've heard that indigo helps ward off snakes. And so I'm wondering if you had that same experience on your farm.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard that also, but it's not true where I live, because I definitely see snakes. But At the beginning, I was so afraid of snakes, and that was another thing, too, because I wasn't used to seeing them, you know? I never lived in the country. So that was one of um, of my fears, you know, Mm -hmm. that I had to face. I had to face that fear of snakes, and that was a lesson and a learning experience, and I would have never experienced that if I wasn't in that indigo field. But, yeah, I've had, um, it's so funny, at the beginning of this season, I had a really big black snake, which, you know, black snakes are good. They're the good ones, and they keep the bad snakes away. And in the beginning, I was really scared of it. And I was like, please go away, please go away. And then by the middle of the season, I became really good friends with it. And we would respect, you know, our boundaries, or spaces. And then because we have moles, and that's the number one reason I wanted that snake, because the moles are just awful. You know, mm-hmm. they can really, really damage the root system of the indigo. So anyway, so I braced the snake. And then um, the, um, the uh, lawnmower came. And you wouldn't believe it. Ran over the snake. Oh no! It was it was so tragic. I was so sad. I was like, I can't believe this. This is awful. And then I had a mole problem. So then um, last week I was out in the indigo field, and I saw another snake. And I'm not sure exactly what kind of kind it is. I think it's a garter snake. I've never seen those before out there, but. It's been out there, and it's, it's it's funny because it's just hanging out. It's very mellow. So I'm embracing it because of the mold, you know. It's one of those mm-hmm. things where you have to just get used to it, you know.
1: Yeah. And I I identify with everything that you're saying, you know, while we have these beautiful colors and these beautiful fibers that we're able to produce, there is a very, very real reality of getting out in that field every day and the sweat, the back pains, the the bugs, and then the lizards, the snakes, the, you know, just so many things crawling around. Um, Similar to me when I first started, I think I it took me a lot of adjusting to getting used to that, even just living in the country and dealing with so many things, calling around. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely understand where you're coming from with that.
0: Yeah, it's another world. It's a whole different culture is what I call it. Mm-hmm. And you have to respect them because it's their, their home. You know, when I first moved out there, I was terrified of everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then I realized, you know, it's their home. You have to be gentle and you have to respect them. So now when I walk, I have a, a, I call it my snake stick. It's a like a walking stick with a bell. And so that, like, they hear the bell and they run away, you know. So it works. It works pretty good. Mm -hmm. So I recommend a, a, a snake stick with a bell
1: good advice thank you for that i'll definitely have to (laughs) look into that especially for you know those trips into the woods
0: because you you have to have a lot of courage you know to go Mm -hmm. into the woods you know i didn't realize it at the beginning but you know you see things you don't want to (laughs) see
1: you do you absolutely do you absolutely do and are there any other new projects that you're working on? Do you have any particular plans with this indigo that you recently harvested?
0: Yeah, um, this whole season, I um, I have an indigo farm exchange project where um, I have one volunteer who helps me. And in the process, we do it, a learn work exchange. And so this whole summer, me and her, we've been making... Um, dried leaf indigo patties is what I call them instead of the indigo balls I decided to make like flatter and smaller because it's so humid you know where I live Mm. and it's so hard for those big balls to dry so we've been making dried indigo patties with the leaves all summer
1: wow
0: and yeah I'm so so excited about this process, which, um, Abhi Fafana, he was an inspiration and he, um, guided me in this process. And it's a fermentation indigo dye process. And, um, I've been studying, researching this for years and I'm just so happy to, to finally, um, you know, be doing that process because, um, It's the oldest indigo bat process, and and it's just really simple and special. And I feel like that's where I am now with my work. I want to really simplify it and make it easy because it has been, you know, it's been a little hard learning. You know, at my age, like learning all of this information, especially the chemistry, has been really a struggle. So now I'm just so excited by simplifying it. And the fermentation process is um, is really amazing because it's akin to cooking, um, akin to making a stew, your own stew. So you can, you know, it's a slower process. So it's, to me, it's a lot like cooking. I love it.
1: Amazing. And I'm also really curious, how are you separating the leaves from the branches?
0: We are hand-picking. Oh, things. man. Wow, yeah. that's a lot of work. I know. <laughs> I know. Every morning, we we'd get out in the field early and then harvest the stems and then hand-pick each leaf, you know. Especially, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a perfectionist, so I get some stems in there and some flowers and some seeds, you know. But um anyway, so right now, uh, yesterday was the last day of harvesting for this season, so I'm getting ready to weigh all of those dried-leaf indigo patties. So I'll see how much we have and how much of a vat we can make um, from the whole season of doing that method. Um, I'm a little afraid to weigh them. <laughs> Because I'm like, I know it's not a lot of indigo, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's part of it. It's it's the process. It's not about the quantity. You know, to me, it's about the quality of it. So...
1: Yes. And for those listening who might not understand what I mean by a lot of work, Indigo Ferra Sufuticosa is very different from Indigo Persicaria, which is a much larger, longer leaf, which would be easier to pick and then make the balls. Sufuticosa has very, very, very tiny leaves that are about an inch, maybe, or less than an inch, and they're, they're not yes. really wide either. Um And so individually picking them when there's probably, I mean hundred maybe a hundred leaves per plant and she also just said she has three hundred plants so that's a lot of picking of indigo so um d- just a little reference for those listening but yeah so I mean amaz- it's amazing that you've also found a way to create the the indigo balls Cause I've seen a lot of people make them with persicaria tinctoria and also I think Abu Bakar I think he grows an indigo a I think there's an A in the, the variety that he, he uses because it's native to Mali. But yeah, the leaves are much bigger. And so I've, I've been very curious of that method and also the, the Japanese method of um, fermentation. So I'm very excited to hear about what you come up with in your experiment.
0: Well, listen, if you ever want to learn, you can come next season. Hopefully we can gather again next season and you can come and help.
1: Let's plan a work day. I will absolutely
0: come out. Yeah, Yeah, I actually am going to plan, you know, depending on, you know, what happens in the future. No one knows. Um, But I am planning some harvest workshops for next season. Very small uh, classes. So if anybody's interested, they could, you know, email, email me are getting in touch with me about that to get on the waiting list.
1: Yeah. So that was actually my next question was, uh, where can people go on the internet and social media to find your work and to follow you or to reach
0: out to you? Um, I sell dresses at shopworthwhile.com. Um, I am, I am, uh, slowly finishing up autumn dresses now. <laughs> um, hopefully soon now that the indigo is done I'm getting back to that and I sell um, accessories and textile art at the Gibbs Museum shop and you can follow my work on Instagram which is madamehagar and I have a website called Um so you can see the work there
1: amazing so before you go, we have one question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts?
0: Yeah, I, I feel um, like to really step back, especially this season I've learned to really step back and breathe and take everything really, really slow because there's a lot involved in what we do um it, you know it's 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 a lot of hand work and um a lot of things play into the creative part of the work so i feel like um reading as much as possible for me and workshops. I know it's hard now, but I I know there are some virtual workshops. Workshops are really, really important. And for me, travel was so vital. I know it's hard to do now, but we will be able to get back to that in the future. So I urge people to really travel. I mean, that's the most amazing way to learn all these ancient techniques, um, go to India, go to Japan, and see these amazing crafts, these creative ways people make simple but amazing art and craft. I, I think that's really um, the most important thing for me was travel, and I'm so so grateful for my trips that i've made over the past few years to india and japan and i can't wait to go back
1: amazing thank you so much for joining the podcast and for sharing your story i'm really excited to share with our listeners
0: thank you so much for your interest
1: that's a wrap if you're interested in supporting Lee's work, you can find links in the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 127. In next week's episode, I'm speaking with Tori Beckham. Tori is a Brooklyn-based, Texas native, interdisciplinary artist who uses weaving, plants, and many other creative mediums as a means of creating a space for Black and queer folk to see themselves reflected in the work emanating from the textures. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. I'm really, really excited to bring you on next week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving!